Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5. Now, if you were here last week, we talked about one of the greatest, if not the greatest decision we make is to be born again. And uh, if you weren't here last week, I, I highly encourage you to get that, that CD. And the reason I say that is, is because there were things that were said just as far as every one of us that we're able, when people look at us and ask us, are you born again, where you're able to say yes, instead of I hope so. I want to be, and that was the goal last week about, about salvation. But also I want to leave you with this thought before we move on today. Uh, just as a, as a baby is born in this world, there's a process that he continues to grow and he continues to grow and he continues to grow. I've never seen a baby come into the earth that's a full grown man or woman. It's not going to happen. And that's the same way as, as a believer. You get born again, and I believe this, guys, as long as you stay connected to Father God, He's our source of life, you're going to grow. And so I want to leave you with that thought in that area. But also, you know, when we get born again, it should be in our heart to imitate our Heavenly Father. And you know, you, you see Mother's Day just passed and Father Day, Father's Day here in a couple of weeks. And I love to see the videos. You know, you'll see a grown man out pushing his lawn mower and right next to him is his little son pushing his little plastic mower. I want to be like Daddy. Well, I believe that's part of us as believers that when we get born again, that ought to be my heart. I want to imitate my father. And so that, that was last week. This week, we're going to talk about who's in charge. And every one of us guys have, have life dis, uh, changing decisions that, that alter our life, whether good or bad. But one of the questions must be answered is, who's in charge of your life every day? Not just Sundays, who's in charge? Because I'm going to tell you right now, somebody's in charge. And it's either going to be you or it's going to be God. Now, we're going to start today in Joshua 5. And I want you to hang in here with me because once again, we're going somewhere with all of this. Joshua 5, verse 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. Now what's going on here, guys? Joshua is now the leader of, of the Israelites. And he's in a land where there's a bunch of giants. And so all of a sudden, he, he, he gets around this guy who's standing there, not just with a sword, but with a sword drawn in his hand. Now I don't know about you, but you get around someone with a sword drawn, it's going to get your attention. It got Joshua's attention real quick. So look what he goes on to say. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Are you a friend or are you a foe? Now look at, at, at verse uh, 14 real quickly here, that the response. So he said, no. So he said, no, but Joshua's thinking, that wasn't the question, buddy. The question was, are you for us or for our enemies? And he said, no. Now, the reason he said no is I believe he answers that in the very next, next sentence, basically. So he said, no. But as the commander of the Lord, I have come now. So you know what this guy with the sword saying? I'm not for you, and I'm not for him. I'm on the Lord's side. And if you're on the Lord's side, then you're with me, okay? And so when he says this, look at Joshua's reaction. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth 
And he worshipped and said, What does my Lord say to his servant? Now when Joshua worshipped and he bowed his head to the ground like this, I believe he was saying, You're Lord. You're in charge. But something else happens right here. And this is what we're going to talk about a lot today. And there's significance in this. Verse 15. Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot. Now, the taking off the sandal of the foot, guys, this, this was a sign of humility, of respect, but also submission. And so he said, take your sandal off your foot. Where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Now the reason it was holy, guys, is where the Lord visits, it becomes holy ground. And so if you'll note there, it said, and Joshua did so. He did so. Now there was a, a, a man here in our first service who loves to worship God and praise God. And he told me this, he said, Pastor, there's been a couple of times in my life where I've really begun to worship God and I got into the presence of the Lord. And he said, something happened though. He said, when I bowed my head to the ground, and he said, I took off my shoes. He said, I've been in that situation a couple times, and he said, the presence of the Lord was so strong that he said, I couldn't even talk. And I thought, because you respected and you honored. Now, if we went back 40 years before this, in Exodus 3, verse 5, the same thing happened to a great leader named Moses. God told Moses, he said, get your shoes off, get your sandals off, because where you are is holy ground. Now I believe the reason the Lord said this to both of these men, he was basically asking them the question, who's in charge? Who's in charge? And so the, the action of taking off their shoes, it symbolized, Father God, we respect you, we honor you, but we also submit to you. Now in both of those passages, if you look real closely, it said, they removed their shoe. God didn't remove it for them. They had to make the choice, I'm going to remove the shoe. So Father God, you're in charge. Now look with me into the book of, of Ruth, chapter number 4. Ruth chapter 4. Now you're going to go to your right, to Joshua, to Judges, and then you'll hit Ruth. Now, this is the way I've memorized the books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then you have to ask yourself this question. Why did Joshua judge Ruth? That's how I learned them, guys, right there. Joshua judged Ruth. It really didn't happen, but that's the orders of the Bible, okay? I'm just throwing that in for free today. It may help you. Kind of gives you an idea of the way I think. It's a little different at times. But here we are. <laughs> Thank you. Somebody's in agreement with me. Here we are in the book of Ruth, four chapters. To paraphrase the first two chapters, I'm going to tell you what's going on real quick. There was a man named Elimelech who was married to a woman named Naomi. They had two sons, Malan and Chilean. The times in Bethlehem were bad. Their economy was horrible. Inflation was bad. Unemployment was terrible. So he decides to move to Moab. Now guys, Moab wasn't a godly place. The Moabites were horrible people, but that's where he decides to move. 
When they get to Moab, it's not long after they get there, Elimelech dies. He's dead. So the two sons, they married two Moabite women. They married a woman named Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah. And Ruth. Not long after these two sons marry him, guess what happens to them? They die. So now all the males in the family are dead. The mother, Naomi, says, man, I'm getting out of here. I'm moving back to Bethlehem. And so as she decides to go back, the daughter Orpah says, I'm not going. I'm going to stay in Moab. But the daughter Ruth says, I'm going with you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. So Ruth says, I'm going with you. So they move back to Bethlehem. Bethlehem, guys, is still not a good place to live because things are bad. So in order for Ruth and Naomi to make it, Ruth has to does a, a, a thing that called gleaning. What gleaning meant was when the farmers would go in to harvest their crops, they were, they were uh, uh, told to leave the corners. You can take everything in the field, but these things on the corners, you leave them for the poor of our land. Now to this very day, they still glean in Israel, still going on. I want to highlight something for you on that though. When these people would go into the field to glean, the owner of the land wouldn't go out there and pick the fruit, the vegetable, whatever it was in the field they were harvesting. The people had to come out and get it. And I say that to say this today. I think one of the worst things we've done in America is allowed people to do nothing. I'm not against poor. I believe we're called to help the poor. But it is wrong when we put a self-inflicted entitlement upon people. God never created any of us to do that, okay? None. And so even in this time, this is what was going on. You want to eat? You better get out there and do something. So day by day, Ruth goes out to the field to glean for her and her mother-in-law. The owner of the field was a guy named Boaz. Boaz begins to take note of this woman named Ruth day by day. And you know what Boaz realized? I like her. I like her a lot. I'd kind of like to marry her. But he runs into some problems. Well, what's the problem? Well, let's start in Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz went up to the gate. Now remember last week if you were here, we talked about the gate a lot. The gates of hell, the gates of heaven. This is going to give you an idea how I came up with just seeing this through the scripture. They go up to the gate here, and the gate, guys, is where all the legal matters of their city are decided. This is where it took place. So they go up to the gate, and he sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came and sat down, and he took ten men, the elders of the city. Now guys, the, the elders were endowed with authority. And this is what it meant, that Boaz was going to get the elders here who had authority in transactions to say that's good or that's bad. So the elders of the city, and he said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the close relative of Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold a piece of land which belonged to our brother Limelech. I thought to inform you, saying, 
Buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. So he said, I will redeem it. So the thing that's happening here is, this close relative was required basically to repurchase the land of Naomi. Now Boaz is saying, listen buddy, you're the first one in line to do that. If you'll do that, then do it. But if not, I'm going to do it. Now really the reason Boaz was doing that because he understood this is the only way I'm going to get Ruth. And so the guy says, redeem it. Verse 5. Then Boaz said, on the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead. Why? To perpetuate or to raise up the, the name of the dead through his inheritance. So what he's telling you here is, listen to this relative. If you want to buy back the, the property for Naomi, you're going to have to buy it back for Ruth too. You're going to have to do it for both of them. Now when I read this, you know what actually he's saying? If you want to get married, you know what it's going to cost you? Everything. Everything you got. Now I don't say that negatively. I will tell you this though. If you're going to contemplate getting married, understand this right now. It's going to cost you everything. Both of you. Okay? That's a good thing, okay? You don't have to frown about that. That's a good thing. I'm just making a point. This is what Boaz is telling this guy. He said, listen, buddy, you want them both? It's going to cost you everything. So look at the guy's reply here, the relative in verse 6. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now he said, you redeem it. I'm not going to do it. I, I don't want them that bad because I don't want to ruin my own inheritance. So you know what he's saying? In other words, Boaz, you can have them both. Verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm anything, one man took off a sandal and gave it to, this, to the other. And this was a confirmation in all of Israel. Now this was a demonstration of possession and authority. So in order to say, I don't want her, I'm relinquishing all my rights, they took off their sandal and said, here. What I'm trying to show you here, guys, there was always significant to this stuff. Whether it was taking off your, your sandal in the presence of the Lord or this. They didn't do it just for the fun of it. So this is kind of what he begins to tell us. Now verse 8. Therefore the close relative said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. And you know what this represented? The other man surrendered all of his rights. Everything he had, but it also symbolized, Boaz, you are now the rightful owner of Naomi and Ruth. Now I want you to understand today that Boaz was a type of Christ. What do I mean by that? 
the, the way that Boaz redeemed Ruth and Naomi, the only way that me and you can be redeemed is by Jesus. There's no other way, guys. Only by Jesus, okay? I want you to understand that. Go with me to the book of, of Deuteronomy chapter 25. And as you're turning there, let me say this to you. Remember, guys, this wasn't just verbal. The proof of the pudding was when he took off his sandal. Now, they could verbally agree to things, but when they took off that sandal, it meant something. I want to show you this video this morning as you're turning to Deuteronomy 25. I want you to look at this, and I believe this will help you today to see that. If you guys will go ahead and cue that video this time. I believe it's going to work. You know, it's easy as a Christian, and I believe this if we took a poll right now and we said, how many of you is Jesus in charge of your life? We'd all, we'd raise hands, we'd raise feet, everything. We'd say, oh yeah, he's got total control of my life. But then we look at this and we think, does he really? Does he really? Now I want to give you another illustration here of the removing of the sandal, the power of it. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Begin with me in verse 5. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Now, if this happens, this is why you want to be the oldest brother, okay? You don't want to be that younger one, all right? I'm just kidding. That's not the truth. Verse 6, and it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of his Israel. So he's saying that his memory is carried on. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to where? Go up to the gate and to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of the city shall call to him and speak to him. So you know what they're going to do? They're going to try to convince him and say, Listen, Larry, this is the best thing you can do. Just go ahead and marry her and make it right. But look what happens next. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her. In other words, I've been at too many Christmases with that woman. She's crazy. I'm not going to marry her. Not going to do it. Look what happens in verse 9. Then his brother's wife shall come in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot. Now you know what this is showing right here? Now note there, it says she will remove the sandals from, not he, but she. This is showing, guys, that he has abandoned responsibility. I'm not going to do it. Then look at the next thing. Look real close and it says, and she shall spit in his face. You know what that represents? Contempt. Everything, all of these have significant, guys. She will spit in his face and answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who will not stand and build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. Now this isn't a good day for a man. 
That he strolls in and thinks, man, I don't want this woman. And the next thing she does, in front of everybody, she removes a sandal. You know what that's saying? You dirty dog. You dirty dog. Then she spits in his face to represent contempt. Then he gets his name changed. Hey, what's your name now? My name now is the house of him who had his sandal removed. This wasn't a good day at all, guys. And the reason I highlight this is because, once again, this shows the significance of the power of this. He had the right to marry her, but he refused. He gave up that right. So when you go back and look at this, when God began to tell Joshua and Moses to take off your sandal, you know what he was saying? Are you boys going to give up your right to lead? The significance was... Are you going to say, Father God's in charge? I'm no longer in charge. Father God is in charge of my life. He's the one who's in control. Now let me ask you the question. So who's in charge in your life? Is God in charge of your life? In every area? Or have you withheld some things just like kind of on the video? Now to help us out a little more, go back with me and do the New Testament to John 13. John chapter 13. And it's very easy, guys, for us as believers to talk to talk. It's easy to say, you're in charge, he's Lord of my life. That's, that's not difficult for at all for me to say. But the proof of the pudding's always in the eating. Does the way I walk and the way I live, does it line up with what I say? And once again, I'm going to say it this way. Does your walkie-walkie line up with your talkie-talkie? Because it's all going to come down to this, guys. My actions and my behavior show a lot more than just my words. See, it's very easy to come in here on Sunday morning and say, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. But what does the rest of your week look like? Does the rest of my week look like God is in charge of my life? John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come, that He should depart from this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Now think about this, guys. Jesus, is, He's at the Last Supper. He knows he's fixing to die. And not only does he know he's fixing to die, he understands how I'm going to die. But if you think about this, guys, Jesus never quit. He kept going right till the end. And I love this. that He said, I love these guys till the end. The very end, verse 2. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray Jesus. And Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things to His hands, and that He had come from God and was going to God, He rose up from supper, laid aside His garment, and took a towel, and He girded Himself. The Amplified said it was a servant's towel. After that, He poured water into a basin, and He began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel, which He was girded. Now really, this represented, guys, humility, This represented the heart to serve. If you think about Jesus' own words, He said, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve. And this was not beneath Jesus' dignity to do this. 
Now I want you to think just a second about in their days. They wore sandals. They didn't have a lot of concrete. Everything was dusty. You can imagine how dirty and nasty these guys' feet were. But Jesus, it wasn't hit and miss. He said, you know, I'll wash your, your feet today because you're a pretty good guy. You've got a lot of money. You've got a lot of prestige in this world. But I'm not touching your stinking feet. Jesus was never above any of that, guys. And this was a lesson He was teaching His disciples. Verse number 6. Then He came to Simon Peter. And Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Now pay close attention to how Peter addressed Jesus. He said, Lord, Lord, are you washing my feet? Verse 7. And Jesus answered and said to him, What am I doing? You do not understand now, but you will know after this. And what Jesus was telling him is, Peter, you're fixing to understand the word humility. You're fixing to understand it's not about you. Actually, you're fixing to understand authority that is displayed in a totally different way than you've ever seen it. Keep reading. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Now let me tell you this about Peter, guys. He wasn't being rebellious here. Peter was not being rebellious here. Actually, I believe... Peter was really trying to be humble. He was really trying to be... If you look at this, Peter was politically correct. And the reason I say that is Peter understood that in Jewish customs, the teacher was never to go below the, the, the student. The teacher was up here and the students were always down here. But in, real, in, in reality here, it's flip-flop. And Peter basically is telling Jesus, this isn't right. This is not right at all, Jesus. Verse 8. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now, that, there's a teaching in that all, all to its own. If I do not wash you, the only person that can wash you and me of our sins, is Jesus. And that's what Jesus was telling Peter. He said, listen buddy, I'm your only hope. I'm your only source. Are you going to submit to this? And if you pay close attention to that verse, it's cross-referenced into Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 was the chapter of King David. Where King David had sinned horribly, had gotten into adultery with Bathsheba, he had killed her husband Uriah the Hittite, and in Psalm 51, G, or, or David himself said, my, my sins, my iniquities are before you. Only you can wash me. And then in, in Psalm 51 verse 7, David said, Wash me whiter than snow. And I look at this, and this is exactly what Jesus was telling Peter here. Listen, buddy. I'm the only one that can wash you, but you must allow me to do it. You must give me permission to do it. Verse number 8. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him and said, If I do not wash you, 
You have no part with me. I want you to understand something. In order for Jesus to wash the disciples' feet, they had to take off their sandals. Every one of them had to take off their sandals. And remember the taking off of the sandals represented I'm no longer in charge. You are. I surrender everything I have to you. And as I say that today, some of us haven't. Actually, when you look back to what happened with Joshua and even Moses in Exodus 3.5, remember, both of them had to remove their shoe. The Lord didn't do it for them. They had to make that choice. And it was like the video when the lady said, I can't make a choice. And the guy who represented Jesus said, you already did. See, this is what this talking about. And so as I looked at this, there is no secret discipleship with Jesus. And we can stand here today and, and the question we must ask, we can say this, Lord, you're in charge in every area of my life except and you fill in the blank. And the except for every one of us could look different. How many of us have sung the old uh, uh, hymn, uh, I surrender all except my money. I surrender all except my time. I surrender all. And then we fill in the blank there again. Have we really surrendered all? Have we really given Him control of our life and said, Father God, I'm no longer in charge, you're in charge. And to say, Father God, you're in charge, you know what that means? My decision making is based off the Word of God. It's not based on what Hollywood tells me to do. It's not based on, on a society that's so out of control right now, on, on I want to feel good. You know what? I'll serve Jesus as long as it feels good. See, it's not what he's talking about. He's saying, are you going to relinquish complete control of my life? Of your life to me? And something I want you to note there. Whether it was with Peter, or whether it was with Boaz, they did it in front of all kinds of people. Whether it was the elders, whether it was their peers, they did it right in front of people. What's the significance of that? Jesus himself said, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before the Father. But if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father. And I believe it's very, very symbolic even for us guys that one of the greatest things you do when you get born again is you have to walk an aisle. Very, very humbling. But very real and powerful. And, and many of us have done that. But even what about this? What in our society? If we understood the taking off of shoes, whether it was to come into the presence of the Lord, or whether is it to be symbolic of me saying, Lord, I surrender everything. You're in control. Stand on your feet with me this morning. And you may be...